0: Well, we are starting a new series today on the book of Habakkuk. You say, Habakkuk, where is Habakkuk? Is that even in the Bible? Uh, Reed and Lisa Jolly are coming into membership later on in the service today. We're really excited about that. Reed told me that happiness is sitting next to someone who knows where Habakkuk is. And so you can go ask uh, Reed later um, where Habakkuk is, see how fast he can find it. And you will know how happy Lisa is, I guess. So we are starting a new series. And you might say, why in the world will we look at Habakkuk? Can't we think of something more relevant? I mean, where is Habakkuk again? And Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets. What ancient Jews used to look at is one book, the Book of the Twelve, probably because it was easier to find that way. And they read it a whole lot. And they thought it was very relevant. And I think, I hope to show by the end of... Uh, by the end of this moment together, that that it indeed is relevant for us as well. But as we begin, um, hear the word of the Lord from Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. This is the word of the Lord. We'll try that again. We're going to thanks be to God after the reading of God's word. You're like, is the reading that short? Yes, it's that short and it's still God's word. So hear the word of the Lord, the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. This is the word of the Lord. There we go. Let's pray. God, I am so thankful that you have given us your word, that you have given it for encouragement, for reproof, for correction, to teach us about yourself. Please, we ask, that you would make yourself known to us and that you would be mysteriously present even in the preaching of it. And Lord, may we see Jesus. It's in his name that I do pray. Amen. Well, it was my good friend's first time to meet with a seminary professor, and he was going into his office for lunch. He was a bit nervous as he was meeting with the seminary professor and he had read these folks books. He had read this particular professor's book. He had heard a lot about him, so he's going to eat with him. Uh, If you don't know this, uh, seminary professors are, I'm one of them, very idiosyncratic. Prove the point. So, seminary professors are very idiosyncratic and my friend walks into the office. The professor had the pizza there sitting in front of him that he had ordered for their lunch together. Um, the professor gets the pizza. He walks behind his desk. He sits down. My friend gets a pizza, a slice of pizza. He sits down. And as they're about to, as they're about to, to start in, uh, the professor is just staring at the pizza box. And my friend's like, "Okay." And then he goes, he breaks his his stare for like half a second. And he says, "Would you mind praying?" And my friend's like, "Okay." So my friend prays. My friend says, "Amen." My friend looks up. The professor is staring at the pizza box. Then he proceeds to ask him lots of questions, like how did you end up at Covenant and what's going on with your life and tell me about your family. And my friend starts talking about his story and he's getting uh, very detailed into into who he is and why he's there and in the middle of it, the, the professor goes, excuse me, brother, excuse me. And he gets up from his desk and he walks around the desk and he folds in the top slats of the pizza box and he tucks them in. And then he tucks in the front of the pizza box and then he pats it on the top and he says, we wouldn't want it to get cold, brother. We wouldn't want it to get cold. Carry on. Now, I think that's hilarious because this guy is sitting there and he is so fixated on the pizza box and the fact that it is half open or whatever, not closed all the way, uh, that he's kind of can't get his mind off that even though he's sitting there listening to someone's story right in front of him. And the reason why I laugh at that is not because I am laughing at my professor. I'm actually laughing with him because I know what it's like to get fixated on something. Do you? I mean, whether it's the scratch on my watch or that spot on the car that you can't get off or the thing that I forgot on vacation that I really needed that I just can't get out of my head the whole trip. I know what it's like to get fixated on something and everything becomes uh, really, really out of order. I lose perspective. You know, now is a particularly easy time to get fixated on things and to lose perspective. Whether it's uh, the pandemic, which dominates uh, most of our thoughts and conversations and seems to crowd out every other aspect of life, or it's the fact that it's an election year and we put way, way more stock in, especially the presidential office, as important as it is than is warranted. Uh, We know what it's like to get fixated on something, and it is easy right now to get fixated and to lose perspective. We are starting a new series on the book of Habakkuk. And and in this series, uh, I I think we open up the book of Habakkuk and we read in in chapter 1, verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Habakkuk was a prophet, and he was living in a time of tremendous, tremendous um, political unrest he was living in a time when social injustice and the social injustice that he saw around him was overwhelming, quite frankly. And he was also living in a time where people weren't quite sure what the future held, but they had a hunch that it was going to be pretty grim. Sound familiar? See, in other words, Habakkuk is living in a time when it was very easy for God's prophet and God's people to lose perspective. And when we lose perspective, uh, I think what happens inevitably is that we feel anxious, tense, bored, scared, overwhelmed, agitated, annoyed, because we just don't see things in their proper place. But I want you to look at what happens in verse 1. In verse 1, we read the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. See, what does Habakkuk and his people get in the midst of a time when it was easy to lose perspective? A vision. They get a vision. A vision to actually see. Perspective is the ability to see things properly. Uh, Perspective is the ability to assess the size of things in relationship to other things. And one of the things that uh, what this vision does is it, it reminds Habakkuk of who he is and who the people of God are and who God is. And it says you need to look at everything that you're fixated on in light of these realities. You need to zoom out and get perspective. And so that's what I want us to see as we go through this book. First, I want us to see that Habakkuk reminds us who we are. And the first thing I think that we see in this book is that we are a people who wrestle with God. The opening of the book, chapter one, we find a man who is in dialogue with God. The whole chapter is actually set in this dialogical fashion. Habakkuk speaks, then the Lord speaks. Habakkuk speaks, then the Lord speaks. And and you're listening to this, but it's not really a dialogue. That's not really apropos. It's, It's actually a complaint, like a lawsuit. Habakkuk is bringing a formal complaint, a lawsuit. And you know who he's bringing it against? God. Habakkuk is bringing his case Against God, verses one through four, he peppers God with questions. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? And then the Lord responds in verses five through 11. He answers Habakkuk, but Habakkuk, he's not satisfied. And so he pushes back. He pushes back against the Almighty in verses 12 through 17. And then after he pushes back because he's not satisfied, you know what he does? He goes to a watchtower. Like the thing that you look at when you're about to go into battle and it's a secure place. He goes up into a watchtower and he braces for God's response. See, this book presents us with a man who is wrestling with God. Because that's what the people of God do. See, when faced with social upheaval and political unrest and a grim future, what does Habakkuk do? He wrestles with God. When when he faces circumstances that are likely to have caused anxiety and tension and boredom and fear, what does he do? He pursues God until he finds a resolution. Because that's who the people of God are. You see, Habakkuk, he comes from this people. And you know what their name is? Israel. You know where they got that name? Because their forefather, a guy named Jacob, one day was crossing the forge of the Jabbok River. And there he wrestled with this mysterious figure all night long. And he later learned that the figure was God. And when he came away from that wrestling event, he did not come away the same. He came away changed. God left him with two things. He left him with a limp. And he left him with a new name and that limp and that new name, they would forever mark not only Jacob, but all his descendants after him, all his people. And you know what the name was, Israel, you shall never, I'm sorry, you shall no longer be called Jacob, God said. But Israel, for you have striven, you have wrestled with God and with man. Habakkuk wrestles with God because wrestling is baked into the very identity of the people of God. I remember walking to my first postgraduate seminar, and uh, I went up. I was at uh, right next to Durham Cathedral, which was built in like the 1100s, and it's just huge and gorgeous. And I'm going into this, uh, into this old building, and I'm kind of sweating, and I go in this small room, and there are all these students gathered around. And there's this uh, very prestigious professor who's sitting at the end of the table, and we're talking about a subject, and the professor said some things that I just I didn't quite agree with. And so I kind of very nervously got up the gumption to kind of push back a little. And, uh, and we had this exchange, and it was the beginning of one of the deepest relationships that I have. And what I found after that exchange was that that professor was not looking for superficial agreement. He was looking for serious engagement. God is not looking for superficial agreement. He is looking for serious engagement. He is looking for his people to come to him and to wrestle with him, and this is an invitation to do so. There's... We need we need more than ever we need to come to God's word and to come to God in prayer and to wrestle with him. Wrestle with God. Because if you don't wrestle with God you're going to wrestle with everything else. You're going to wrestle with your spouse, you're going to wrestle with your boss, you're going to wrestle with uh with you know your representatives, you're going to you're going to wrestle with the customer service agent or the checkout person at the grocery store. You're going to wrestle with anyone and everyone. Wrestle with God. He's inviting you to do so. It's who we are. First, Habakkuk reminds us that we are a people who wrestle with God. Second, though, Habakkuk also reminds us that we are a people who trust in God. Habakkuk never forgets that, the, and the reason why Habakkuk is wrestling with God is because he believes something about God's character and God's promise. He knows something of who God is and what God has promised, and that's why he wrestles with God. You see, Habakkuk wrestles with God from a place of faith. And this book is a call to have faith. That's why the verse in Habakkuk that the New Testament offers, quote, over and over again is Habakkuk 2 4. And the righteous one shall live by his faith. Because God's people, his righteous ones, we are those who live by faith. We trust for God and we trust God for a future that we cannot conceive. And when we cannot conceive a future. You know, a lot of us are unnerved right now because because we we know the promises of God and we know the end, but we don't know how we're going to get there. We know the destination. Joshua talked about that last week. We know the destination, but how do we get there? We don't see a way. Let me ask you a question. When have the people of God ever known how they were going to get there? By faith, Abraham was called to a land and he did not know how he was going to get that land and he did not know how he's going to get those descendants. When Israel was called out of Egypt, they had no idea how they were going to cross that Red Sea and they had no idea how they were going to enter into the promised land when Israel was in exile, how, did the, how in the world how in the world is there going to be a Messiah, a descendant of David, who, who is raised up and rules over the nations? They didn't know how they were going to get there. And the disciples, they had no idea how a dead Messiah was going to defeat their enemies. The people of God know the destination. We do not know how to get there. We live by faith. We have always been those who live by faith. Faith is the assurance, as the author of Hebrews says, of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We live by faith in the assurance of things that are hoped for, a conviction of things not seen. We live in, in the assurance of a future that we cannot calculate. And we live in the conviction of a love that surpasses our circumstances. You see, we do not judge God's character by what little we know of COVID-19. We judge COVID-19 by the immense amount of things that we know about God's love. That God loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son into a world of sin and sickness and misery and suffering and injustice and death. And then he took on death. For you and me, so that all who would believe in him would have eternal life. This is why Jesus came, to destroy the works of the devil. Who came to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus, he came that we might have life and have it to the full. And we are a people who live in light of these realities. We we are a people who hope when there is no hope. We are a people who... Who are motivated by love when everything in the world tells us that we should be motivated by fear. Why? Because we believe in the God who called all things into existence before they even existed. The God who raises the dead. And that brings me to my next point. Habakkuk not only reminds us of who we are. Habakkuk also reminds us of who God is. And Habakkuk reminds us that God is the sovereign ruler of history. See, in verse 2, Habakkuk asked the question, where is God? But by the time we get to chapter 2, verse 20, Habakkuk knows exactly where God is. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Where is God? The Lord is in his holy temple. The temple was that place and where the holy of holies was, where the presence of God was. And there at the mercy seat, you know where that is? That is like a portal. It was a kind of portal where heaven and earth touched. You see, when when I, when, uh, when Habakkuk says that, that the Lord is in the temple, he's saying that he's in that place that, that touches the very throne room of God. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and and the train of his robe filled the temple. So what is Habakkuk saying? Where is God? He knows where he is. He's on the throne. It's where he's always been. And what's he doing there? He is ruling all things so that the earth might be full of the knowledge and glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Chapter 2, verse 14. That's what he's doing. That's where he is. When the pandemic ravishes, God is on his throne. When injustice overwhelms us, God is on his throne. When children are missing some of the most formative ed- years of education in our lives, God is on his throne. When a failing economy threatens the most vulnerable among us, God is on his throne. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Habakkuk reminds us that God is the sovereign ruler of history. And Habakkuk reminds us that that God is the savior of his people. See, Habakkuk never loses sight of this, that this sovereign God who rules all things and is working all things out according to the counsel of his will so that the end, the earth will be full, chock full of the knowledge and glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That this God is the God who saves his people. He's his God. And so we read at the end of the book in chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. See, Habakkuk realizes that this God is the God of my salvation, that he has brought salvation to his people because he, the sovereign rule of history, is also the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his wrath always remembers mercy. And he gives us salvation and strength. Chapter three, verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. And you know what? He still does. God goes out for the salvation of his people and for the salvation of his anointed. Like most of you, we have already burned through everything that is good on Amazon Prime or Netflix. What are we going to do? So what we've started to do is watch The Last Dance and revisit my, uh, well, well really my aspirations of being an NBA basketball player. So... That, that turned out, it was a choice um, that I made not to do that. But in the last dance, what we see is the epic legacy of Michael Jordan and the Bulls. It's talking about the 98 season, but it's really about his whole career. And as you watch this epic uh, story about Michael Jordan, you start to realize something. That it seemed that like when his team... Was most challenged and playing their worst, and when the opponents were playing their best, uh, he seemed to like rise to the occasion. That's actually what made him shine. So, so whether it's whether it's when he scored sixty nine points versus the Cavs in overtime to lift his team to a victory, or whether he scored sixty three points against five future Hall of Famers in the Boston Garden. Or, or, or whether he was battling it out in the 1993 finals with Charles Barkley. And Barkley won the MVP that year and had the best game of his life, and Jordan still crushed him. And Barkley said, and then I knew, I am not the best basketball player ever, nor will I ever be. It's like, no matter how difficult the challenge, it's right in those places that Jordan would shine. And you know what that meant? It meant that the Bulls, Fans like the Chicago, the natives of Chicago, and kids like me in Memphis, Tennessee, and all around the world. You know what we did when the Bulls were on the ropes, like when they were two down in a playoff game, uh, and 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 Pippen got hurt. You know what we did? We said, "Oh no, it's all over. It's all over." Is that what we did? No, we said, "Let's see what Michael's going to do. Let's see what Jordan's going to do. What, what's going to happen?" Do you know that, that we can have two different types of perspective right now? One perspective is that we can look at everything that we see around us and we can see gloom and doom. But I think those of us who have an infinitely greater than Michael Jordan, who chooses just these kind of times to show his infinite power and might and wisdom, I think we could say, you know, the situation's dire and things are pretty difficult and I'm not sure what's going to happen next. But, you know, let's wait and see what God's going to do. Let's wait and see what God's going to do because he is the one who brings salvation to his people. He is the one who saves his anointed. So I want to invite you with me to see what the sovereign and saving ruler of history is going to do for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.